Hello, agents, and welcome to Podcast 13. We have a very special guest here with us today. The man, the myth, the legend, the reason we are all here, the showrunner of Warehouse 13, Jack Kenny. I think I only, I think I only fulfill the man. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> But uh, I don't know about the myth, and let's hope I'm not a legend yet, because that sounds like I'm dead. <laughs> um, so we have a few questions for you. I'll start. How did you become involved with Warehouse 13? Well, I'm, I'm, I, I know Eddie's story about that. Um, so what, what, it hap- what happened was um, I was directing a bunch of episodes of an ABC family show called Roommates, and Eddie was uh, guest starring on a couple of episodes. And he told me, uh, he came in one day, he said, my show, I think my show got picked up at Sci-Fi. I'm like, oh my God, that's so great. Congratulations. What is it? What's the show? And he told me that it was this uh, show called Warehouse 13. And and this guy who, uh, and I said, who wrote it? He said, well, David Simpkins ran the pilot. I, I think he did a pass on the script, but he didn't originally write it. He just, he ran the pilot. And, and I know David. David was my co-EPM book of Daniel. So I just called David to congratulate him and say, hey, um, congrats, man. Uh, this is great. And he said, well... Yeah, but they're not going to let me run the show. They want to look for another showrunner. And I said, well, you know, you you know an unemployed showrunner. And so um, David said, yeah, sure, I'll put in a word. And Eddie, and I told Eddie, hey, listen, if, you, if anybody can put in a word to, please do. And I called my agent at, um, uh, I think he was at ICM at the time. And uh, I said, so I want to go in on this show, Warehouse 13. I said, why? It's a sci-fi show. You don't do sci-fi. I said, well, but it's, it's not. Re- I mean, yeah, it is, but it's. It's Raiders of the Lost Ark and Back to the Future, and and it's all the kind of sci-fi that I watch. I mean, I don't. I, Battlestar Galactica scares me because I don't speak Klingon, but I know I'm mixing my sci-fi genres. That was on purpose. Um, <laughs> but I said, well, this is a show about a family. I can see the family. I can see who they are and how they relate. I can hire writers who can help me with the sci-fi gack. That won't be a problem. Just get me the interview because I think I could be. This could be their crossover show. And that's kind of what I said in the meeting with Mark Stern and um, the the execs. I said, I think this is your crossover show. I am not a sci-fi guy. You don't want a sci-fi guy running this. You want somebody built who, who knows how to relate to, to everybody who doesn't watch sci-fi because they're the ones who come and watch this. They, and, I, and I also asked them, Claudia, Saul needs a sorcerer's apprentice. He needs somebody to talk to. Otherwise, he's just going to be Charlie and Charlie's angel. And, and there should be a whole world going on here at the warehouse that already can be a part of and and he needs, I, you know, I wanted to hire a young Asian actress. I pitched that and I pitched the, how the series can work. And because uh, I know Eddie for years, I've worked with Eddie for years, and I knew, and I knew Saul was funny. I just got the job that way. And then Eddie, you know, Eddie's, Eddie's father said, I called and told him to hire you and you got a job. And I said, <laughs> I'm your boss. Eddie did tell me about it first. Eddie was the first person to tell me about the show. And then, and, you know, I'm sure he's, he spoke highly of me and, and helped me get the gig. And I absolutely adore everything about Eddie. So um, that that plays into it as well. Awesome. Thank you so, so much. Uh, we on our podcast talk a lot about the artifacts. And that's something really cool about Warehouse 13. Um, so when you were writing or preparing the show, how did you decide what artifacts would be in each episode? Was it like you built the episode around an artifact or you had to create an artifact based on something you wanted to do? Well, mostly it was, um, we would find out what emotional story we wanted to tell in an episode. Like if we want to delve into Pete's past or something about uh, uh, Micah's family or somebody that's, that that Ar- already knew in the past. 
and then we would, we would work the artifact around to that. What would be a cool artifact? And we never like to go one on one with an artifact. Like we would never do Thomas Edison's light bulb because it just feels it's too on the nose. We do Thomas Edison's buggy whip or or you know something that is more off the beaten path. I always wanted to do Hitler's microphone. We never got around to that one. I thought that would be really cool for some radio uh, shock jock or a, a pundit to get a hold of and, and start uh, raising hell. But um, so we sometimes it would be an artifact. Sometimes we would think somebody being an artifact. We go, OK, what? How does this how do we build her? Like, I think Charles Atlas's uh, uh, briefs were um, were that way. Um, so we'll go, we'll go half and half. But it was always it always had to be about the emotional story that we were following. And the um, you know, uh, and how does it affect and how does it affect someone? What is it driving someone to do? That would be what what was most important because that's what the story's about. Yeah, for sure, and it that comes across really well too when you're watching it. Hang on, I got I I I I, uh, I have this. This is the only art the only artifact I hung on to was um, Magellan's astrolabe. <laughs> <laughs> heavy. And it, and, it, and it comes apart like it did in the show. And it's, it's, it's got the engravings of, of, I mean, our props department did amazing stuff with, with and this is the only one I, I kept because um, this, this is a good illustration of how we would come up with an artifact. We knew we had to turn back time, right? We knew we had to find some way to turn back time 24 hours and save the warehouse. And so we worked backwards like, you know, where, where does time most, oh, it's affected on the international date line. That's a cool place for time to change. Who crossed the international date line? When would that have happened? Who was the first person to cross the international date line? That gave us, oh, cool. He died at the moment where it was crossing the international date line. We, we worked backwards from what we needed something to do and then what would be the coolest way for it to do it. That's amazing. And this is like not even a question we wrote down, but we love the props department. We see so much research that goes on on like the notes on Artie's desk, the stuff that no one would think about except for us because we're nerds and we always pause the screen and read them. And we love the props department, the set deck team, whoever is in charge of all of that. They did such a great job. Um, well, the genius at the top was Franco Dakotas. Franco was the production designer, and he was the guy who, uh, who, who came up with um, the steampunk elements, and he really, he really created the whole look of Warehouse 13. He's he gets all the credit for that, and he would be, you know, he would come and say, "What if we do it like this?" And then um, his he had a team, he had a design team that um, oh, and shoot, and I'm going to blank on names now because it's been five years, but. Um, there was one of one of the members of his design team, one of the one of the great great. I'll I'll, I'll remember it later. Um, he said, you know, he came up with you know we had the 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 bronze sector right that that Franco designed how the bronze sector would be, and uh, we had all those bronze statues and every one of those bronze statues had a, a, a information card at the base, and this guy had had researched evil people in history who nobody knew about, who we would have bronze. And he had, and they were all laid out on each one of these cards of who these people all were on the card. It was just stuff like that. And Carrie Spirell, our our uh, props mistress, who was just a, a, a genius at design and coming up with these stuff. She'd work with Franco to come up with the designs and things. And then they they'd spend. I remember the um, uh, compass. Whose compass was it? Um, Redicus. Yes, yes. His compass cost fifteen thousand dollars to make. 
because <laughs> it was it was engraved on 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 copper and brass and um and I mean this 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 thing was this thing was probably about ten thousand dollars to make because it had to be engraved and built and all this. Wow. I mean I don't think I can it for that, but that's what that's how much these things cost to make because they were all made from scratch and they were all made by artisans working in the original materials. And that was Kerry and Franco again doing all that. It was just, um, it was a great, great team. And they had so much fun doing it. You know, and we researched everything. I, I still send money to Wikipedia every, every year because they saved my life. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I'll ask my next question in a second. But I just want to say when we were doing the, I don't know if you remember because it's been a while, but the Spine of Saracen episode. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. It's a really good one. And when they're trying to figure out what might be causing it before they know Miranda my co-host the one that's not me um, I'm Jill by the way I'm the one you've been emailing with um, I'm Miranda. <laughs> uh, Miranda paused on that episode and there was a chalkboard behind Artie that was full of stuff like thunderer of the night and uh, someone's headstone amber and we looked all of that up and it was all totally accurate for what was happening in the episode it was we were just astounded by their work and a lot of times prop department people don't get the shout outs and fan stuff and we just we're oh, so glad to celebrate them i i so know and that and that kind of stuff that was um uh i remember his name is hamish buchanan and hamish would go and research the hell out of all that stuff and he would cover whenever there was a board with stuff on it it was all accurate it was all covered with stuff that related to the episode or research they would have done I mean, you could look, and Saul, of course, dove into that and loved it. He would get up there and be studying it all, and and he'd throw in ad libs with things about the things that that connected to it all the time. It was it was uh, people really got into it. I mean, I've always loved history, so it really it really that really helped a lot in terms of getting excited about it. But um, Franco and Hamish and and Kerry, they they really worked hard to, and several and many other people worked hard to make all that stuff accurate and authentic. That's amazing. Awesome. I I had researched it thinking it would be like an an inside joke from the set and it was even better to find out that it was all like stuff Artie would have theorized was a real artifact like it was it, it was perfect it was it was kind of all about impressing each other you know it was about like like Hamish wanted to impress Saul with like look what I came up with you and Saul <laughs> would really appreciate it Saul would go in there and go oh my god this is fantastic this is like my whole character is up here on the board so he could he could use that to feed who he was. And, you know, he'd run around the office gathering papers and stuff and looking at them and all the stuff was authentic and he'd get ideas off of them. And no, it was it was really we just had a field day with that kind of thing. <laughs> That's amazing. OK, so my next question is, what can you tell us about the writing and production process in terms of how far ahead you planned certain arcs or plot points? Did you come into each season like knowing the general arc of what would happen or did you just go with the flow? Uh, we would talk about an arc for the season, like the season that already went bad. We had gotten a note from um, Sci-Fi and Sci-Fi New York to say, we want the series to be a little darker this year. But okay. Um, and I, I wanted to kill off a character um, because I wanted death to mean something in this world. You can't, I mean, you know, um, um, uh, uh, Aaron's character died and came back. You know, Steve, Steve was brought back to life. And, and I did, we didn't want to make it so that death wasn't, the stakes were, weren't high enough if, if death didn't mean anything. So um, I wanted to lose a character, and I thought the, the coolest way to do it would be to have Artie kill someone, because how do you come back from that? 
and and how and how uh, dangerous is this world that we all that they're living in? But we would we would plan out an arc uh, for a season like that. Um, season four we had we had planned out because and also the arcs were kind of dictated to us by what we came up with, right? Because like at the end of the first season, we introduced McPherson. And and uh, I think we introduced H.G. Wells at the end of season one, too. Did we not? Um, so that sort of told us what the arc for season two was going to be. We're going to follow uh, McPherson and H.G. And what's their plan? And what are they, you know, we talk about what do they want to do and how do they want to do it? And is H.G. good or bad? And, you know, how do we want to play this? And, and you know, we want to tease the relationship with her and Micah a little bit, even though I got into a lot of trouble with lesbians. We're not putting them together. Sorry, it was just, they were just, you know, flirting. People do that. Um, and then, you know, season three, the same thing. And we, we, we would come up with the arcs and then let the characters kind of tell us where to take it. You know, let the characters just, you know, decide for us how to go. And, and we want people to pull apart. Like we want Pete and Micah to fight. I think we had Micah drive off at the end of season two and leave the warehouse. And so the arc for season three is also going to be, how do we bring Micah back into the fold? What did that mean to Pete that she left? So it was always kind of driven by emotions and, and the characters' uh, love for each other and how they, because they did all love each other. And so those, that would drive at season arc two. But it was rarely driven by artifacts or, or external, external devices. It was almost always driven by relationships. And even somebody like McPherson was Artie's best friend. They were very close. They were in love with the same woman. Uh, we try to always do that with, with any character that was around. I mean, that's why it was so much fun to introduce Pete's mom. You know, what's that, what's going to happen there? She's a regent. Oh my God. Well, how does he not know this? So, and what was planned and that your mind goes back and thinks, wait a minute, did she, or did she organize him getting pulled into this in the first place? I mean, it was all, we had so much fun when we didn't do something like that. We go, well, no, how can this work? I think it was a, it was a line one year when, when, uh, well, oh, Mrs. Frederick said, I made her a promise and I intend to keep it. And she was talking to Lena and, and I, I remember, I remember when we put that line in there, we thought, okay, we're going to have to figure out what this is, <laughs> figure out what promise is and what is, and what is she going to, and can she keep it? And it turns out she couldn't, it turns out she couldn't keep that promise. I and cried when so, I first saw that episode. Yeah. It was, I mean, when Lena, when Lena goes, yeah, yeah it was, yeah. it was tough. I mean, I had to explain to Janelle, so I'm sorry, I have to, I'm going to kill you off at the end of this season, but you're going to have a great scene. It's going to be a really good scene when you you know when it happens, and uh, so so yeah, I mean it's it, uh, so the the characters and their relationships and their love for each other is what drove every season. That's really great. And did you like have a lot of time to come up with that, or like did you sit down to write the first episode of the season and come up with all that, or was there like a time before then when you well, we all, all got together? Had, we we always had a a good healthy pre production. That was one of the things that. I kind of insisted on from from sci-fi and they were very generous in giving it to us was um to to get a good uh i think the minimum we had was an eight week prep before we start production so eight weeks of just the writers sitting around the room coming up with stories coming up with how this is going to go pitching it to the studio and the network getting them on board and and so we would um we'd have a, sometimes 10 weeks we'd have to get all the ticket going so when we started shooting each season we would have at least six scripts written and approved and, and a few more stories in the hopper uh, so that we would stay ahead of ourselves because also because of the way the series was designed, it was like shooting two movies every week. 
because uh, we, were, we were very rarely just in the warehouse. We were always on two locations where the teams were, were working. It wasn't like, you know, uh, you could be in the, it wasn't, you weren't in New York City for every episode. And so that was, a, that was hard on Franco to design new cities in every, every week. And it was hard on locations to make sure we had locations in Toronto where we could go and shoot. And we had to lock them down well in advance. I mean, it took us uh, for the first Christmas episode to find a shopping mall that we could shoot at mm. all night that looked like a good shopping mall that was that you know <laughs> you only have from ten o'clock when it closes until dawn because a lot of shopping malls don't want you to shoot there it's a it's a big pain for them um, so stuff like that we had that's why we had to plan lots of pre production time I need as much pre production as possible so that we can line up the the planes on the runway. So they almost start crashing into each other once we get halfway through the season. That's really cool. Not a lot of shows have that, too. No. Like, I definitely know on some shows they like they start out so good, and then like the last five episodes of the season, they're just white knuckling. <laughs> well, you're gonna. I mean, you end up you end up white knuckling at some point anyway because <laughs> something gets thrown out, or you lose a location, or or an actor can't show up for some reason, and there's all kinds of things you have to be prepared for, but. Um, and there, I have seen and heard of shows where the director is prepping off an outline and doesn't have a script. And our goal was always to make sure that the director had the script at least a week or so before they started pre-production so they could get their heads into it and really start thinking about what, how, how it shoots and talk to us about things and suggest changes for stuff that they needed them. And so that we really stayed ahead of the game so that by the time we got to, you know, by the time we were on, on camera, it was smooth sailing. That's awesome. So my next question is a little lighter. You've mentioned some artifacts. You have some artifacts. But is uh, what is your favorite artifact? Is it one you've already mentioned, or do you have more? Um, you know, I, 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 uh, uh, there's plenty. There's a lot. I, mean, I love the football. <laughs> we came up with that um, last, I don't remember when we used that. Was that in season five, or was it um, end of season? Oh, was the, it was after the warehouse had blown up. Because that was the computer that had all the information in it, and uh, I, I remembered it from the pilot, and I thought we haven't brought that back. I loved the idea that we brought back something four years before, mm -hmm. or three years before, mm -hmm. and and they did such a cool job opening, creating this opening football, this the steampunk keyboard and everything inside it, and uh, I thought that was I, that was probably my favorite cool surprising artifact that there was this orbiting satellite football computer that kept track of artifacts around the world that that I thought that was really fun and cool and uh, I actually had the football for a while um after it was over they gave me the football and I gave it to um Andy Gore at Quantum Mechanics who uh he made he makes the Teslas and the Farnsworths that they sell and he he made us bunches of Farnsworths and Teslas to use on set uh, for free which saved us a lot of money because those things broke you know when you <laughs> It was a, it was a pain. So he made us a bunch of those. Then, like a month or so later, I saw it on eBay for thirty five thousand dollars, and I called Andy and said, "Hey, look at this." And he said, uh, "No, it's in my office." And I said, "Well, you know, if you can get thirty five thousand dollars for it, sell it. I'll split it with you." Um, <laughs> I think somebody uh, somebody made a football and tried to sell it. I, I hope they didn't. I hope some poor soul didn't buy it. Uh, the other thing that was fun to me was Claudia's Farnsworth. Uh, Farnsworth's Farnsworth. I love that. I uh, actually, we have a, uh, I had that one too for a while. I just was running out of room for artifacts. I kept Magellan's <laughs> Astrolabe, but um, a friend of mine, 
there's a there's a woman who's a huge Warehouse 13 fan, and I met her when I was directing an episode for a, a festival here called uh, directing a play, a one act play for something called SciFest LA, which is a science fiction one act play festival that happened in LA for a few seasons. And this woman was on the board, and I met her when I was directing, and her name is Gail Standish, and she's a huge Warehouse 13 nerd fan lover, right? She's also a federal district judge <laughs> and, and, and a vet. So she was like, she was just nuts for Warehouse, and she got married uh, to the props guy from SciFest, and they had a steampunk Star Wars wedding where... They had they had R two D two and C three PO as 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 bridesmaids and groomsmen. They had a Wookiee. They had everything. It was very Star Wars and lots of steampunk stuff. And I gave her Claudia's Farnsworth as a wedding present. Uh, she was like, she was so into that and was very excited. So you know, I want to make sure people who it meant something to got the props. I love that. So our next question is about the big bads. So we have McPherson. You mentioned the Astrolabe. HG is, you know, on the fence. Um, when you think back over the show's big villains, which one do you think is the most frightening and why? Um, you know, my my template for writing villains, really anywhere, but certainly on this show, was that they couldn't be black and white. They could not just be mustache twirling villains. They had to have, it was always gray areas. It was always, they had to have an agenda and the agenda had to make sense. Like McPherson believed that all of these artifacts should be put out into the world and used for, for whatever they could be used for, to, to advance society, to advance the world. He had a very uh, egalitarian uh, approach to the warehouse. He wanted every, every artifact released, which of course could have blown up everything. So but that, was his, uh, that was his goal. And I'm, I'm probably most partial to McPherson because Roger was a friend of mine and I, I called him and got him to do this, and I thought he was amazing in the part, and and I loved uh, my favorite, I, I guess probably one of my favorite episodes, the finale was probably my favorite, the second favorite was our second Christmas episode, where in this alternate life, McPherson is running the warehouse, and and you know what had happened, and Artie's in prison, and Joanne's working for the FBI, I mean, just, I loved that episode, because uh, I love it's a wonderful life, but um, I think McPherson was my favorite because he was the most nuanced, uh, I love HG, but I don't think of her as a villain. I think of her as someone who um, sort of had her own personal agenda, but it didn't really involve villainy. It was just about what what's going on and what side do I need to land on here and what's the you know what's the most interesting thing. And so she wasn't. And then there was Michael. Um, oh, I can't remember his Sykes. name. The actor. Who, yes, Sykes. And his was a very his was a very personalized uh, anger and, and angst about the warehouse. And I, I liked I liked his character, but I, but I think McPherson was the one that that landed me best. But then also I can't forget Tony Head because Tony Head's <laughs> Redicus is uh, not Redicus. Uh, uh, um, um, oh, what am I? Why am I blanking on uh, Tony's character? Um, who, who did Anthony Head play? You the, guys must know. Paracelsus. Yeah. Paracelsus. <laughs> yes. Thank you. I, 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 you know, and I also, I love, I love, by the way, making a, a bad guy out of Paracelsus. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so you have to also bear in mind that my, my leaning towards villains has a lot to do with the actors that played them. And Tony was so much fun and so easy to work with, as was Roger. They were both just, just a joy. And we just had so much fun doing things. And Tony would try anything and do anything. And so would Roger. Um, so I just loved 
I, I guess they're they're equal villains in my in my mind because again they both have agendas, and I did very much enjoy Tony's version of the warehouse and in, 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 in where he where he made everything modern. An interesting uh, story about that location where we shot the future warehouse, the alternate future warehouse, the very clean white space. It was the first episode in season five. Where we shot it was a an automobile testing plant that had various rooms that that were very clean rooms. There was one that had you could you could take the temperature in the room down to fifty below. You could make the temperature in that room fifty below zero. There was another room that had a humidity room. There was a wind room, and all over the place there were these red buttons that said push in case of emergency. Big red buttons on white walls. And the first thing I told the crew when we were there on location was. Let's cover all of those buttons because the first thing Eddie's going to do is push one. <laughs> that's Eddie. That, and of course, the minute we got to the set, the first thing Eddie did was push one of those buttons. <laughs> and alarm went off. And actually, that was where in the season finale, when they, he, they when when Micah was saying, "Why did you push the button? Why did you push that button on the on the the marquee from Forty Second Street?" And Pete says, I see a button, I got to push it. So a lot of it came to who they were. Yeah. And we we learned that when we interviewed Eddie, that the line between Eddie and Pete is, like, not really a line. And that's why the character is so believable. He just is who he is. When he gave that speech, I wrote that speech for him at the end of the uh, season when he gives that speech about, without Pete, I don't know who I am. Um, you know, I this it defines me. And I, I felt like Eddie had found a part, probably the first part in his career that really was who he was in in so many ways and I know I know that it was killing him that the series was ending because he was so completely immersed in Pete he was so uh, he just lived that part and he he loved playing it there was just nothing about it that he didn't love so I mean we, we you know Eddie's been in I'm sure I'm not giving this away because he's talked about it he's been in AA for 20 years now, we put Pete in a, we had Pete a speech about that, about what happened and how he got there. And, and uh, um, that wasn't necessarily Eddie's story, but he really related to it. So, I mean, one of the things I do with actors whenever I'm running a show, and I did it with these guys every season, was we get together and I just say, so what do you do? What do you fill your free time with? What do you like? Do you ride horses? Do you sing? Do you dance? Do you speak another language? Have you always wanted to visit a certain country? Because I want to ride to those things. When I found out that Saul was a, a, a played the piano and was a bit of a composer, we had him writing a song for his father. You know, we, we tried to lean into anything anybody was interested in, and and make it part of their character. That's awesome. That's and beautiful. we we did just see Saul playing the piano, and I didn't realize that was part of him. That's amazing. Yeah, it came out of him. He would he would sit there. I I, used to, I saw him sitting uh, playing the piano on set once, and I thought, I said, "Hey, do you play?" And he said, "Well, I, I teach myself. I play by ear." And I said why don't we have Artie doing something? What would you write a song for? And we just started talking about it. And, and you know, we started talking about his dad and, we, you know, writing a song for his dad. And then, of course, when we cast Judd Hirsch, we knew who his dad was. And that was fun. <laughs> that, was, that was so much fun. That, that, that story in that episode was so much fun. That was so fun. One of, my, one of the moments Miranda and I laughed at when we were talking about it um, in a part that was definitely cut because we didn't want to spoil and we haven't gotten there yet, but I think we'll come up at some point in the future, is the end of that episode where Saul or his dad, I can't remember, like awkwardly suggests, hey, it's Christmas, should someone say grace? And then Claudia just goes, Baruch Adonai. And it was just the most beautiful, like found family moment that it really played. 
I will, I will also tell you that I, um, when I was a kid, uh, when I was in high school, I was playing Jesus in Godspell. And I learned the, uh, the, the Hebrew prayer, Baruch HaTadah, I learned how to, how to say that, and we used it in the show in Godspell in high school. And then we, we went to uh, dinner at our neighbor's house, who, was, who were Jewish. And we were all friends and really close. And they would, they would kid us, and we would kid them. And my, my, friend, my neighbor's father, uh, Mr. Newman, said, oh, so do the Catholics want to say grace? And I said, yeah, sure, I'll say grace. He fell out of his chair. So that's where that came from. I actually did that to my neighbor when I was 18. That's the best. I'm so glad I remembered to bring that up. That was amazing. And then our final question that I have is, do you have any current or upcoming projects that we can promote for you? Um, I don't. I mean, there's there's stuff I'm working on. I'm always working on pitches and things. I shot a, uh, a short film a year ago with Kate Mulgrew and Jane Lynch. Um, just a short 15-minute comedy. I'm trying to sell that as a series. I don't have anything on the air to watch right now. I, uh, I'm working on that. I'm working on a few other projects that I can't really talk about yet because they're in the pitching stages and I don't want to jinx them. Um, <laughs> But uh, cool stuff. I'm, I'm trying to. I mean, I can talk about this. I'm. Do you know Zach? Is who Zach Ward is? He plays. Yes. Yeah, he played Scott Farkas in A Christmas Story. He was. He was also on Dollhouse. I have a Zach Ward story for you. Um, <laughs> I went to Comic Con one time, one time in my life, and I went with a group of people, and we were walking on the floor, and it was right when Dollhouse was out, and they were just releasing dollhouse comics and i picked one up and like the character that he was was on the cover and i was just like oh cool i didn't know they were making a comic of it and when i lowered the comic he was standing in front of me and i screamed (laughs) (laughs) that is so bizarre yeah it was so funny and i was like oh i'm sorry i was just looking at the cartoon version of you and then he hugged me so when you said zach ward like that whole moment just came into my head Zach is a great guy, and he we're good friends. We've been friends ever since Titus. He was Titus's younger brother on, on the show Titus. I I did. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you should watch it. It's a, I think most of it is on YouTube. Um, it's a fun show. It's a fun half hour. Yeah, sure. Plug it. Uh, uh, my the two series I created, I co-created Titus, um, and uh, I think I've seen a bunch of the episodes on YouTube. And I created a show called The Book of Daniel, which I think you guys would like. That's also on YouTube. It's uh, Aiden Quinn and, and Ellen Burstyn, and it's a really great cast. Uh, Allison Pill and uh, Christian Campbell. It's a, it's a wonderful cast. And um, I think it, it's only eight episodes. It didn't last. But they're all on YouTube. But so Zach and I are trying to reboot um, uh, 30 years later Scott Farkas and, and have him still working in the same town. And we have a story built up that I don't want to, I don't want to spoil it yet, but we're doing the story that, but him and Ralph, you know, with him working for Ralphie. I don't know if we can get Ralphie or not, but we could certainly have him working for him. And we're trying to sell this limited 10 episode series about about Farkas. Um, that's one of the projects I'm working on. Uh, still, still haven't gotten anybody to buy it yet, but I'm working on it. Um, so that's about it. I'm nothing, nothing on the air right now to 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 uh, pitch. But um, uh, I love Pen Fifteen. If you want to pitch something, that's a great show. Oh my god. I it's I just finished my rewatch of Game of Thrones because I I am of the internet and needed to rewatch Game of Thrones, but it is literally the next thing on my watch list. I am so excited about it. 
you'll really like it. It's really funny. Like from everything I've seen about the promotions for it, it's just the encapsulation of that age. Just the the way really everyone is. was. <laughs> yeah, it's really uncomfortable, and it's exactly what everybody went through in junior high. It's great. It's really great. Yes. Thanks for joining us, agents. Oh, what did we used to say? We used to say, um, uh, we could say, uh, okay, agents, get out there, snag it, bag it, and tag it. Yes! <laughs>